If you've got your Bible in front of you, you may want to turn to page 207. Um, If you have the notice sheet, you may be worrying that we're reading the whole of chapter 3 and 4, and that is very long. We're not, we're just going to read chapter 3, which isn't quite as long. So, reading the whole chapter. Early the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan. There they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the Lord, your God, and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gigarites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth (coughs) will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap some distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowing down to the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Lord, would you help us this morning as we come and gather round your word to be inspired by this incredible miracle that happened at this time. Lord, we thank you that as we've heard of what you've done in the life of Julian and Anne and how through their, their amazing witness to you, other people have come to faith. Lord, we just long for more miracles in our church of people finding you as Lord and Saviour. So be with us, we ask this morning, as we look at this together. Amen. Was anybody watching the football on Friday night? England versus Germany? Yeah, a few hands, sheepish hands going up here and there. We watched the last part of it. Um, We'd been out to watch Paddington too, so we were a bit late watching it. Paddington was much better than the football, by the way. But we were watching England versus Germany. And whenever we watch England play together as a family, we sit there in the lounge, and suddenly all of us become experts in football. We become skilled at knowing what Gareth Southgate should be doing. 
We know everything about who the best goalkeeper should be at that particular time. We know exactly what side of the pitch different players are best at playing at. We know the thing is, none of us have any experience at all of managing football teams. You know, I can just about barely kick a ball. But still, I will sit there and offer my opinion about what should happen. Do any of us like being armchair critics? Yeah? Might not be football. It might be tennis. It might be politics. It might even be church. But we do it, don't we? We sit there being armchair critics. Because I can be an armchair critic. I can have all the opinions in the world. But no matter how strongly I feel about them, they're going to have no influence whatsoever. I'm not going to get a phone call from Gareth saying, what do you think, Jonathan? It's just not going to happen. Joshua 1 and 2, the people have been camped out on the east of the Jordan. Spies have been sent out, but as yet, nothing more has happened. Now, Eric reminded us in his prayer that actually the call has gone out in Joshua 1 to be strong and be very courageous. Be strong and be of good courage. But this hasn't been tested yet. Nothing has yet happened. The call to be strong and courageous could quite easily become the call of the armchair critic. He sits there saying, let's be strong and courageous and do absolutely nothing about it. Do you ever get cynical about yourself? Or is it just me? Now, I sometimes sit there and I think, actually, I wonder if I'm a bit like an armchair critic, but living on the east of the Jordan. That I'm sat here, and I'll quite happily sing those songs like Be Thou My Vision. You know, our brave songs of declaration. To say, God, send me anywhere, call me to do anything, I'll do whatever you want, providing it means staying here and doing absolutely nothing. And we become the spiritual armchair critic. I can spend the whole of my life training for evangelism, mission, lifelong discipleship, reading good books, being mentored, attending conferences, all the things that I feel I should be doing to go in the right direction. But if I haven't got the courage to step into the Jordan and do what God is saying, actually I'm in grave danger of becoming that kind of armchair critic. It's almost as like I'd be the sportsman, the footballer, who goes to all the training sessions, learns how to do everything, but refuses to play a match. Or the musician who spends hours playing scales, learning everything, but then refuses to play a piece of music. I just wonder sometimes if we can get into that point where we actually like the comfort at the east of the Jordan, but we're not prepared to cross it. You see, for, jo- for Joshua, the east of the Jordan at this point, it's not comfortable, but it's a lot more comfortable than it's going to be on the west side. We see there's an issue. The promises of God are not on the east, they're on the west. The calling of God is not to stay put, but it's to move out and go into the promised land. It's to go into the place that has been promised right the way back, 400 years or so, from Abraham. We get to verses 3 and 4, and we start getting the plan of what is going to happen as they're called to go out. The Ark of the Covenant, this sacred object that, amongst other things, contains the tablets with the Ten Commandments, is to go before them. This is not just a symbol of the Lord's presence. This is a a reality of God living with his people. And as they are going to cross the Jordan, this is going to become a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. Because they're going to go from being sort of landless, nomadic wanderers to actually being a people with a home, a people who fulfilled God's calling, and a people who will then go on to be the people that God has called them to be. And it's at this point where promises start to be transformed 
into reality. The call to be strong and courageous can't be an armchair thing when you're actually called to go into the land with all those enemies in it. It has to get legs, and it has to go. And there's another reminder here that won't be lost on the people. What happened in the Exodus? What was one of the big events of the Exodus? Parting of the Red Sea. As they left, as they became free, God split water, and they go through. As they go into God's promise, what happens again? The Jordan dries, the water is piled up on one side, and they walk through. Today's Remembrance Sunday, isn't it? We've already been thinking this morning about the horrors of war and the sacrifice that people have given so we can live in freedom. You know, remembering is essential for us as Christians. Remembering is a central part of our faith, about retelling the story, about retelling what God has done. And you know, one thing I've really appreciated as we've been talking about our vision as a church over the past months or so, is people coming and talking to me about what God did 25 years ago. About how this building that we're now sat in came about because people 25 years ago felt God call and they responded in faith. We wouldn't be sat here today if people like Julian and Anne and Brian and all kinds of other people... Put, just put your hand up if you were here 25 years ago. Just look round. You need to go and ask these people stories. Because there's some amazing stories of God's faithfulness in the past that need to speak into the present. You know, individually, as a church, we don't get very far in trusting God in his faithfulness unless we remember what God has done in the past. And so we get to verse 5. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua is a leader. He is the one who will give the people the call to go. But he will also interpret what God has said and apply it to the people. You see, there's a whole sermon here, there's a whole series of talks you could do here on leadership about what it means to actually be a leader of God's people in some sense. And it's all about hearing from God and sort of then saying, actually, well, what does this mean? What do we do next? And the key thing here is that before the people can go anywhere, before they can cross the Jordan, before they will see God do something amazing, they're told, make yourself holy. Be fit for the purposes that God has for you. And this can be traced back to what happened in Exodus 19, verse 10. It says this there. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So they were used as a people to having these calls to make themselves holy. In that case, it was washing the clothes. Now, there are many benefits to washing our clothes. I don't need to go into that. But it's not to make ourselves holy. You know, holiness is to do with what's going on inside, not what we look like to other people. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 says this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, the call to holiness that is for each of us today is the call to obedience. The call to live God's way. The call to live with godly priorities. You see, the people in verse 5 are on the threshold of something new, of a new season in the life of people. A transformative moment. And I love that verse 4. Since you have never been this way before. 
God is going to do something amazing. God is going to do something new. But before God will do that, there has to be holiness. There has to be holiness amongst the people. Anyone been to Warrington's Temporary New Market? Yeah? Did you enjoy it? No? Mixed, mixed reviews so far? Well, we had to go into Warrington last weekend to buy Timothy a new coat, and we, we went to the new market. We saw it was open, and we went. We, we live a really thrilling life. I'm sure you're, you're realizing this. And it was all right. It was quite a nice building. We had a wander around. But I was talking to somebody this week about my exciting trip to the market. And they said, well, I can't go into Warrington. They said, I just find it too depressing. Because I remember, they went on, when Warrington used to have independent retailers down the full length of Bridge Street. There's a few nods going on here. I seem to have hit a raw nerve. Perhaps I better back off. But I remember when this town centre was thriving, and, it was, and now you go round, you know, half these lovely buildings are boarded up, and they're not like they used to be. And it was a sense that actually there was something better in the past than there had been in the present. I don't know whether that's true. I've only known Warrington really for two years. I can tell you it's true of Stockport. It's definitely true of Stockport. But I don't know if it's true of Warrington. But in Christian talk, in the way we talk about things, sometimes we use the word revival, don't we? As if God send revival, take us back to how things were. Refresh us, refill us, renew us. Can anyone tell me what book we were looking at this time last year on Sunday morning? Test of memory. This is really depressing. <laughs> it's a book about revival. There's a clue. A post-exilic book, a historical book. No. Ezra, fantastic. You weren't even here last. <laughs> so the book of Ezra is a book all about revival, about rebuilding what God had called them to rebuild. You know, the temple had been destroyed, and God says, come back. Come back, do those things again. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Get to a place where actually things are rebuilt that have been lost. And revival, by its very nature, is about that re, you know, do something again that has happened previously. Joshua 3 is not about revival. It's not that kind of passage. And sometimes, you know, we ask ourselves questions like, do we want to see revival? Do we want to see that? I'm not sure that is the right thing to pray for, actually. Now, before you hand me my P45, <laughs> let me explain what I mean. If we want to recapture as a church something of what happened in the early church, something of what happened post-Pentecost, where thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ, then, yeah, I want that kind of revival. But if we want to look through rose-tinted glasses to a time when we think things were better than they are now, then I want to put a question mark there and say, actually, is that what we're looking for? We can confuse talk about revival into something that's just about nostalgia. See, I was talking a few years ago to a vicar. Um, this was in a church in Stockport. And it was an absolutely magnificent building. Seated six, seven hundred people. Absolutely fantastic building. And this bloke is a really godly man. And he was, he was just devastated because of the way the church was. It used to be full, but now there were 30 people in it, rattling around in this enormous building. And he said to me, when revival comes, this building will be full again. And that was the kind of hope they were living in. That there had been a golden age, and they wanted to get back to it. But actually, do we need refilling? Do we need revival? Or do we simply need filling and God to do the new thing?
Do we want to look back or do we want to look forward and say, God, will you do something totally new in our life, in our day, in our time, and in our context? I actually want to question this morning whether we need a new word. Your Bible doesn't cut it because that's just a French convenience store chain. But actually, what word do we need? Something transformative. Can I encourage us to be bolder than praying merely for revival, but to pray for transformation, to pray for a fresh awakening, if you like, of the Holy Spirit amongst us? Do we want to be stood on the east of the Jordan saying, actually, God, we know that we have never been this way before. Would you do something new and fresh in our lives, in our time? Hear this verse that I believe the Lord keeps on drawing us back to from Isaiah. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. What God will do in Joshua is not a revisit, but it's a new thing. Something fresh. Something exciting. Since you have never been this way before. If today we're sat here and as individuals, as a church, we want God to do the new thing, then what's the call? Be holy. Be holy. Live as I would want you to live. Do you want to become the person God wants you to be? Do you want to perhaps be free from that sin that we know so easily entangles us? Do we want to be in that place of God doing the new thing? Perhaps not like it was a few years ago but in a totally new way. Well, our prayer today needs to be one, not make it as it was, but a prayer of consecration and a prayer of moving forward. See, these two things go hand in hand in Joshua. If we set apart, the Lord's presence goes with us. If we're not set apart for God, then actually we start to hit all kinds of problems. And the people of Israel, as the history of the nation goes through, they hit the problems, they turn their back on God, They end up in exile, and it's only after then that they actually need revival. But actually, if they'd stayed with God, that would not have happened in the first place. You see, if today we're loving other things more than God, it may be money, it may be ourselves, it may be our relationships, it may be our stuff, then, you know, we suffer because we do that. We end up living in sin rather than living in freedom. We end up getting entangled rather than being the people God calls us to be. And if we do that, we suffer. We do that, we really suffer. See, God's presence is an amazing thing when we live with the reality of God's presence in our lives. Yeah, sometimes I think we're, we're tempted to think about God's presence being with us. It's just about events changing. But just look at these three Bible verses here. My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Who would like rest in their innermost being? That's what God's presence gives us. When we live his way, we have that rest inside us. This from Psalm 16. You will make known to me the path of your life. In your presence is fullness of joy. So not just rest, but joy as well. And this from 1 John 4. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That sense of God's love coming again from God's presence of God being with us in all the different times of our lives. How do we remain close to God? 
How do we get to the point where we're ready to cross the Jordan? Well, we become like him. We hear the call to Christ-likeness and we say, yes, Lord, that's me. I want to be obedient. I want to consecrate myself. I want to become holy. And so there's a bit of an awkward question we have to ask ourselves from these verses. Is Jesus calling you today to repentance? Is that the call that you need to hear from the Lord today? That might be for the first time. It might be to come to Jesus for the first time in repentance and faith and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Or it may be that actually it's an ongoing call. You know, repentance is not a fashionable word at the moment. It's not easy to talk about sin in our world. People don't like being told that there are things wrong with them. I think Mark was talking about this a couple of weeks ago. But actually, when we look at what Jesus did, Jesus died on the cross because there is a deep, deep problem with us. And only he could take that problem. That problem is sin, that problem is rebellion. And we need to repent and we need to consecrate ourselves. But you know the good news of the gospel is? When we turn to Jesus, when we turn in sincerity, with deep repentance and do things his way, he says, you're forgiven. You can walk in my ways. My holiness is your holiness. And we walk in freedom. So off they go. Verse 7, we have the promise reiterated to Joshua from the Lord, so I am with you as I was with Moses. The God who parted the Red Sea is the God who will deal with the River Jordan. And then we get, in verses 9 to 13, a more detailed description of what is about to happen, and it's pretty amazing. Has anyone been to Israel? Has anyone been to the River Jordan below Galilee? How wide is it, Eric? I know. <laughs> How, any, any idea? No, it's, it's about the width of the canal in Lim. If you look at the Jordan, and actually, these days, the Jordan below Galilee, the river barely flows. It's just a bit of raw sewage going down into the Dead Sea. There's hardly anything to it. But if you go back to before they started taking a load of drinking water out of the Galilee, this is what the Jordan would do at times of flood. That's one of the last floods that ever happened on the Jordan. That's 1936, where there was a great big flood. And you can see how wide it is. That's more like the flood we're talking about in this passage. So if you look at pictures of the River Jordan and think, well, yeah, it was a miracle, but it wasn't really that impressive because it's only this sort of wide. Actually, it's not. It would have been, like Eric said, probably a mile wide, the flooding of the Jordan at that point. The promise of God is that when his holy people and the priests of the Lord step foot into the river, the river will stop. The water will pile up and they'll be able to cross on dry land. What we find in verses 14 to 17 is that the promises of God are then totally fulfilled. What God says happening will actually happen. And you know, sometimes we hear the promises of God and we think, God, will you actually do what you've said? But in these verses we get, this is what will happen, this is now what happens. So I want to think of ourselves today. What is the equivalent of our River Jordan? What is the equivalent to our River Jordan in Joshua 3? Do we find ourselves stood on the edge of something that God has called us to do? Just think individually for a moment. Perhaps God has called you to go and share your faith with somebody who lives in the flat next door. 
But actually, you need this courage and the strength to go and do that. Will you cross the River Jordan, or whatever that equivalent is? Will you go, and will you be obedient to what God has called you to do? Or perhaps you sat here today, and there's been a big calling that God has placed on your heart. Perhaps he's called you to go overseas and and do something for him in a totally different way. What is the River Jordan for you? Just think for a moment, what is that? And then let's think of it for a church as well. You know, this evening, um, we have our final presentation of the vision. If you haven't been yet, can I really encourage you to come this evening, come and hear what we're talking about, so that when we talk about it in services, you know exactly what we're, we're on about, and so you can pray into it and seek the Lord as to whether this is what God is calling us to do. And let's think as a church, what is it that God is calling us to do now? What is that new thing that we will need to do? What is it that God is saying to us as a church family? So there's a challenge, but then there's the other challenge that goes hand in hand with this, and we can't leave this out. The challenge to personal holiness. Today, are you living as God wants you to live? We can't cross the Jordan without consecrating ourselves. That's what happens in this passage. We can't do the things God wants us to do without first being the people God has called us to be. And so I'm just going to leave a few moments of of quiet. Perhaps you need to reflect on what the Jordan is, or perhaps you need to just come simply to the Lord in repentance and faith again and ask for God's forgiveness so that you can then move forward. So let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. It says in Psalm 119, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your word gives light. Lord, we thank you that when when we live lives as you have called us to live them, that your presence is with us. Thank you for the call and the promises that were made to Joshua that As you were with Moses, so you will be with him and so you will be with us. And so, Lord, I want to pray for for our lives individually, first of all. If there are things that you have called us to do, I pray that you will give us great courage to make that step. Pray that we will risk putting our foot, one foot above the other, to go into the promises that you have called us to. I pray that as a church, Lord, that as we look to this next season, that you will keep confirming, that you will keep inspiring us. For Lord, before you call us to do, you call us to be. And the call goes out again to be a holy people, an obedient people. So Lord, where we are failing you in our lives at the moment, give us the conviction and the courage to come to you in repentance and faith. And thank you at at the heart of the gospel, is the promise of forgiveness. Is the promise of being able to walk forward with you, of having relationship restored and being reconciled. So just leave a moment of, of quiet. Perhaps if the Holy Spirit needs to challenge you or encourage you in a particular way, let's just leave space to do that and then the music team will lead us in a few moments in a couple of songs of response. <laughs>